Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 19 and 20. We made it through verses 17 and 18. Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. We'll start at verse 17 and read down, down through verse 20. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. What we're going to see here specifically in verses 19 and 20, is Christ's application of our responsibility to the law. Christ is going to apply verses 17 and 18, what we went through, and show us what our responsibility to the law, to his commands, uh, the commands of the kingdom. In verse 19, doing and teaching the law will give us our position in the kingdom, whether we're doing it right or we're doing it wrong. Doing and teaching the law will show us, whether we're doing and teaching right or doing and teaching wrong, what our position in the kingdom will be. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, shall the, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that those who break the law and those who teach others to break it are, in essence, are the ones who are destroying or annulling the law, according to verses 17 and 18. Don't neglect to keep that link to the previous verses. The therefore introduces the consequences of the permanence of Scripture. Because Scripture is permanent, this is the result. So the therefore introduces the consequences of the permanence of Scripture and the whosoever generalizes the application. The ones who break the law, the ones who teach others to break the law, are least in the kingdom of heaven. They are very small, or you could say, unimportant. Now what that implies is that there will be ranks or variations of privilege and honor in the kingdom. We see that in various parts of the gospel, Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, uh, talking about John the Baptist. Jesus said, uh, well, I'll, I'll read it, Matthew 11, 11. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then in Luke chapter 19 and verse 17, we have the parable of the talents. <coughs> and 
Somebody is given authority over so many cities, and somebody is given authority over more cities, and then some have their talent taken away. And so we see that even in the Gospels, there's this implication that there are ranks or variations of privilege and honor in the kingdom. And in this case, the distinction has to do with how you handle God's commands, how you handle the law of God. So the distinction applies not just to those who break the commandments, but those who are not faithful in teaching them. Those who are not faithful in teaching them. Notice the word break there. The idea there means to loose. To loose the obligation of the law by acting contrary to it, by disobeying it, or by teaching that way as well. So here is somebody who is loosing the demands, the obligation of Christ's commands on other people. And they're acting contrary to God's commands, and they are teaching contrary to God's commands. You say, well, that couldn't happen. Well, the Apostle Paul told us it would. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you want to turn there and see it, but 1 Timothy chapter 6, or actually it's 2 Timothy, I believe. No, we'll read 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 5. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are, uh, they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Notice verse 3. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but dotting about questions and disputes of words which cometh envy, uh, strife, railings, evil suspicions, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such, withdraw thyself. So he's making a distinction here. If somebody's teaching otherwise different than what you've already heard, this is the kind of person that they are. Then notice it says in verse 19, break one of these least commandments. It shows that even in the mind of Jesus, there were commandments that he regarded as weightier or greater and then those that are the least. Look at Matthew 23, 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. What are those? Justice, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. So even in the mind of Jesus, look at Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Matthew 22, verses 34 to to 40, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, who was a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So in the mind of Christ, there were some weightier or more important commandments than some of the others, and we see that in these verses. Now Jesus is giving us the application, since Jesus is the one who fulfills the law, breaking the least of what he came to fulfill, and teaching others to do so is a very serious matter. These verses ought to scare us, especially those who are preachers and teachers. Jesus is condemning the attitude of doing away with the commandments, treating them as if they don't exist, and doing this to one of the least is a very serious matter. And so the measure to which a man breaks the commandments and then teaches others is the measure of his status in the kingdom. And they will be called something. Shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. That word called means not just in name only, but the person actually becomes that. He actually becomes the least in the kingdom of heaven. They are what they are called. They are declared as such, and they are recognized as such. So a wrong attitude towards the least of the commandments of God will result in the least ranking in the kingdom of God. Does that sound serious to you? It certainly does. So those who practice the law and teach others to practice it are the opposite of those who are breaking it. They are actually fulfilling it. Notice Jesus goes on and says, But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. They will have a place of honor. Now, Jesus is not just talking about the Ten Commandments, nor is he just talking about the verses that follow and where he tells us the true nature of the law. He is referring to all of the Old Testament scriptures. All of the Old Testament, of course, we know, if it hasn't been already, will be fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the one who fulfills it. But the ones who are teaching it are hence fulfilling it as well. And notice, I, I like the order here. Notice it says, shall do and teach. You could preach a whole sermon on that. The doing comes before the teaching. Does it not? Our lives need to accurately reflect that which we are teaching. So even the least of these commandments must be practiced and must be taught. That's what verses, verse 19 is talking about, is it not? Now, how we practice and how we teach them is governed by verses 17 and 18. For instance, you would look on me as a heretic if I came in here with a lamb and said that we all need to confess our sins on the head of this lamb, and then we'll sacrifice this lamb and we'll burn it on an altar outside. Why do we not do that? Why would it be wrong for me to teach that and then 
I mean, to do it and then teach it. Because Christ has fulfilled those sacrifices. So verse 19 is still governed by verses 17 and 18. So what is still in force is what we need to do and what we need to teach. The law and the prophets, of course, pointed forward to the person and the work and the words of Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of it. We went through that in detail. So we obey it when we conform to what Jesus teaches. D.A. Carson said it this way. As it points to him, so he, in fulfilling it, establishes what continuity it has, the true direction to which it points, and the way it is to be obeyed. Thus, ranking in the kingdom turns on the degree of conformity to Jesus' teaching as that teaching fulfills the Old Testament revelation. His teaching, toward which the Old Testament pointed, must be obeyed. So basically, he's saying that if, if Jesus Christ fulfilled it, it is not something that we do today, but we still use it as a teaching method to point to Christ, as a teaching, teaching of truths that point to Christ. This verse 19, and I know I've gone through it quite quickly here, but verse 19 is a real burden, especially, it becomes a real burden to me. And as I look out, and, you know, Matt's not here, but it should become a real burden to Matt. It should become a real burden to Sophie. It should become a real burden to Chris. It should of course, have been a real burden to Uncle Joe, but it should be a real burden to those who teach or preach God's word. Because the keeping of the law as it is in Christ and the teaching of that to others is a very serious matter. And I'd hate to be a preacher that stands up here and says to someone that you, shouldn't, you don't need to do this, even though it says it in the Old Testament and it's not been fulfilled in Christ, something that's still valid for today, understanding what this verse says. Because if I do that, I become least in the kingdom of God. And so it should be a real burden to anybody that is going to teach or preach God's word. Very serious matter. And the apostles understood that. James understood that because he says, don't be many teachers because you're going to be judged with what? Greater strictness. Greater strictness. So the point here is to be able to understand what verses 17 and 18, that's why I took a long time to go through those, because verse 19 is governed by verses 17 and 18. You know, I believe that the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ. So I'm not going to teach that people need to observe Saturday as a day of worship. Now, if people want to do that, they're more than, uh, they, they can do that. Just do not require it of other people and do not teach it as necessary for salvation. But I believe that the scriptures teach, and I went through an entire Sunday on that, that Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath. Hence, I'm not breaking God's law by teaching that. However, I would say that in principle, 
we should keep the Sabbath, as it were, on what is now the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And we should take some of those principles that God instituted about the Sabbath, and we should look at it as a day of rest, a day of worship, a day of feasting and fellowship among God's people. Would you agree? I think that's because it's been written in our hearts. We should want to do that. Set aside one day out of seven for the Lord. But I don't teach it as a command. And so verse 19 is a real burden to folks who are teachers and preachers of God's word. It's a very serious matter that we understand what has been fulfilled in Christ, what is still valid and authoritative, and how we need to do that first and then teach it. Move on to verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so Christ is going to now show us that keeping the law to enter the kingdom of heaven is virtually impossible. In verse 20. There is a righteousness that is required to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But it is a righteousness that must exceed, and the idea is far exceed, the scribes and the Pharisee. Notice the word for, for I say unto you. That word for links it to verse 19. And then Jesus says, and I say unto you, is going to put some emphasis on the surprising saying that follows. However, there's a shift in thought here. And the shift is in the view of righteousness as it relates to the law. It will not be according to the current and accepted application of the Old Testament. So who were the scribes? The scribes were the teachers of the law. They were experts in the law. These were the scholars of the day. They spent their time learning more and more about the law and the prophets and expounding it to other people. These men, the scribes with the Pharisees, were highly regarded people. Who were the Pharisees? Where the scribes were the teachers of the law, the Pharisees were the keepers of the law. These men were praised by the people in Jesus' day. They were looked upon as the best examples of people who were living by the law of God. That's how the common people saw them. The people saw them as righteous, and it was not possible, according to the people of the day, for ordinary people to be as righteous as the Pharisees. The keeping of the law to them, the Pharisees, was the way of salvation. And so when Jesus makes reference to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the people in that day. These were the people in religion that were the highest regarded people. The teachers and the keepers of the law. They taught a very strict legal correctness following the letter of the law. It was purely external and it was self-made. And, of course, they had many traditions that they were following. They tithed. Now, you know, I don't know what the plant mint looks like or cumin. I kind of know what dill looks like. 
And I know that the seeds on a dill plant are very, very small. And one day I tried to count them out because I wanted to see what the Pharisees were doing. They're small. You could lose them very easily. Did you ever try that? And they did. They tithed dill and these other plants, mint and cumin. I mean, we're talking about a seed that you could barely see. And they tithed on that. They kept the traditions, which were the interpretations of the law. But everything they did was in an external fashion. And folks, it did take a lot of effort. But it was possible with no heart obedience and no faith in God to follow these externals. Isaiah 29, 13 Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. In other words, what they were doing, they were doing it not from the heart, but purely self-made external obedience. But notice this last sentence of Isaiah 29, 13. And their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Their fear toward me, is taught by the commandment of men. Luke 16, 15, he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In Matthew 23, 25, Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. So here they were keeping the law, but it was an external obedience to the law. Let me read to you Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It's the situation that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the publican, and he spoke this parable unto certain who trusted in themselves. These are the Pharisees. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed with uh, thus with himself. That's an important phrase. He prayed with himself. God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector over here and he begins to give the list of everything he does i fast twice in the week i give tithes of all that i possess including dill little bitty seeds the tax collector standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven but smote upon his breast saying god be merciful to me a sinner i tell you this man the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the pharisee for everyone that exalts himself shall be abased He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Kind of gives you a snapshot of the attitude of the Pharisees. Now, why was Jesus so critical of their righteousness? I've said it. It was an external righteousness only. Their heart was far from God. God looks on the heart. They were not able to do anything about their own hearts. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. And this is the difference between how the people in Jesus' day saw them and how Jesus himself saw these scribes and the Pharisees. To the common people, they looked like these beautiful whitewashed sepulchers. But to Jesus, they were full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. They actually would change the law of God, which made it easier to obey or to nullify it altogether. Uh, for instance, when they were supposed to take care of their parents physically with their financial means, they would say, well, we're going to dedicate this to God, and hence and because it was dedicated to God, we don't have to use it to take care of our parents. And one of the Ten Commandments says, honor thy father and mother. So they actually, by their tradition, by their interpretation, nullified, annulled, destroyed the law of God by what they were teaching. They broke it, and they taught others to do that as well. That is what Jesus called the blind leading the blind. Their righteousness was a self-glorifying righteousness. It was an external righteousness that instead of bringing glory to God, brought glory to themselves. You've heard the stories. They would sometimes, maybe oftentimes, I wasn't there, so I don't know how often, of course, but they would time their day such that they were on a busy street corner so when it came time for the time of prayer, they would pray, and everybody would look at them. Or, Jesus said, before they gave their money in the offering, what would they do? They'd blow a trumpet, just so people could watch them giving their money into the offering. That's why I like the way we do our offering. When I was at the church in Lewistown, I was going to eventually get to this place where you guys are at, where you... You know, you just quietly, when no one's looking, put your money in the offering. Because passing the plates can be, you ever seen anybody do it? They take their offering envelope and they put it so that the numbers are facing upwards. So that the next person or so can see how much they were giving. Or the offering wave. You know, here it is. And then it goes into the offering plate. Folks, those are modern-day Pharisees. Their righteousness was a human righteousness, not a divine righteousness. It wasn't God's righteousness. God's righteousness is qualitatively and quantitatively different from man's righteousness. You know who found that out? The Apostle Paul. Look, if you would, at Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Now, these verses kind of mean a little bit more when you understand that Paul was a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. And look what he writes, Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Now I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath reason for which he might trust in the flesh, I more. 
circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. That, I mean, that's really all you needed to say in that day. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This was Paul's attitude prior to conversion of himself. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but refuse, that I may, may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Here was a Pharisee who realized the righteousness that he was trying to produce was not the righteousness that Christ was looking for as an entrance requirement to the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. They, Jesus was now requiring that the righteousness that the people have be a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness, and that the ideas far exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now in the minds of the people, where do you think that left them? That left them without hope. It must have been a shocking statement to the people of Christ's day. They must have stood there with their mouths gaping open, dropped down to the ground in complete dismay, realizing that any righteousness they might be able to produce does not stand the test. What it should have done is it should have driven them to complete spiritual bankruptcy to, uh, before God, like the Beatitude talked about, poor in spirit. Jesus now names the scribes and the Pharisees the very ones who had erected the false standards of religion and morality of that day. These were men who taught themselves, who thought themselves righteous and were teaching others to follow that same path. In naming them, Jesus also condemned them because they're not going to make it either. They break the law. They teach others to do it. And it's the righteousness that they don't even have. I can imagine the people of that day, when they heard that statement, for all the admiration that they had for these men and the placing of these men on a pedestal, if anybody's going to make it in the kingdom of God, surely it's going to be these men. And Jesus said they're not even going to make it. They needed to have a righteousness to which the law truly pointed, which Jesus is going to show us was like in the next verses. You have heard that it's been said by them of old, but I say unto you, he's going to show us what is the true nature of the law. It's different from the righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees tried to live and what they taught. There's a contrast being set up here, verse 20. Jesus is basically saying we need to reject all human goodness. We need to reject the, the trying to establish our own righteousness. And from here, 
the apostles write what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, what he stated in Philippians chapter 3. We must reject that human goodness. We must quit trying to establish our own righteousness. And notice that word exceeds. It must far surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of God will exceed this human righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees try to do and try to teach. It must exceed that in both quality and quantity, degree and kind. It is a different and better righteousness. It is a righteousness that was earned for us by Jesus Christ. A righteousness that is in complete conformity with God's holy law in all that a person is, all that he does, and it flows from the heart. And it's not just an outward conformity. It's not an external righteousness, but it is one that flows from the heart because, and this is the part we've got to get, the heart has been changed. As we learned this morning, the heart of stone was taken out and a heart of flesh was put in its place. The Spirit of God is taking up residence within us. What is interesting here in verse 20 is Jesus does not tell us how that this righteousness is gained. He just gives it to us as a requirement. Jesus has brought a way of entrance into the kingdom of God or a way of salvation that is new. And it is not by our, our own works of righteousness. It is simply trusting Jesus. Those who are in the kingdom, they live on a different plane. A plane that sees the keeping of God's commandments as important. That's what we see in verse 19. The righteousness of one in the kingdom is a righteousness is, that is not a, obtain, a, attained by human ability. It is a righteousness that is given. Go back to Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Remember one of the things I said about that. You hunger and you thirst for something that you do not have. And the way to be filled is it's something that is given to you. Look at Matthew 6, 33. You'll know this verse. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. You are to seek after it because it is not something you can produce on your own. And all these things shall be added unto you, including the righteousness that only God can give. The righteousness of one in the kingdom, kingdom of God is a given righteousness, not one that is achieved or obtained, attained by human effort. That righteousness produces in the life a righteousness that is equal to the person's righteous standing before God. Let me repeat that. The righteousness given by God produces in a person's life a righteousness that is equal to the person's righteous standing before God. Well, all I mean by that is this. That righteousness that is given to us is lived out on a daily basis. We start to show forth day after day after day the righteous standing that we have before God. We start living in accordance with that righteous standing. Does that make sense? 
every day as we live, even though we have this perfect, righteous standing before God, we have to see that put into practice in our lives daily. So Jesus says that it's impossible. There is no way, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, who's basically saying it's an impossibility, shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is a very emphatic and strong negative. It is not possible, even if your righteousness exceeds the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is warning that the way of the Pharisees and the scribes is the wrong way. They want to enter the kingdom of God. They must come a different way. So the impossibility of keeping the law to enter the kingdom of God is going to be seen by Jesus elaborating on or showing us the true nature of the law starting in verse 21. You have heard but I say unto you. And so Jesus is going to go through and start to expose the corrupt teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, the prevalent ideas about the law, and show that nobody can keep that. Um, verse 27, you've heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the idea was you didn't commit the physical act of adultery, you were okay. Jesus says, uh-uh. I send you, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And that would have been a real blow to the people in that time. So these antithesis are Jesus showing the true nature of the law or the direction in which that law pointed based on his authority. Not just extending the law, annulling the law, or intensifying the law, showing us the true nature of the law. The only way to keep the true intent and meaning of the law was by what? A changed heart. It's the only way. That's verses 19 and 20. Let me make a personal application to everyone here. Do you have the divine righteousness of God given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. What is your standing before God? Do you have that righteousness which Jesus is talking about? Has that been given to you through faith in Jesus Christ? If that righteousness has not been given to you through faith in Christ, you will not be part of the kingdom of God. You say, that's pretty harsh, Brother Greg. That's what the Bible teaches. And so you have to ask yourself the question that the Apostle Paul asked the believers at Corinth. Or I should say it's not a question, but he asked them to do this. Examine yourself, whether you're in the faith. Examine yourself, 
whether the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees has been given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And then you're living that out as proof that you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So the question that I'm asking is, yeah, are you saved? And do you know it? Have you received that righteousness by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? Or are you trying to go about to establish your own righteousness? And Paul said that that's, that's like stuff that you put on the dung heap. You've got to give that up because you won't make it that way. And later in this sermon, Jesus is going to give an invitation to the people. Enter in at the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be who go that way. Because narrow is the gate, and hard is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And so I'm asking you this morning to examine yourselves. Do you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to your account by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? If not, you're not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and you won't make it by trying to establish your own righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how clear it is. And I pray that if there's even one here who has not received from you that true, perfect righteousness through Christ, that you would convict them and draw them to yourself. I pray in Jesus' name. Stephen.